You're listening to 1001 Album Club, where each episode we discuss a different album from Robert Emery's book, 1001 Albums, is here before you die. about you two joshua tree in the room i have Anne, hey and john hello and on the line i have kyle 100 and josh how's it going uh the joshua tree is the fifth studio album by the irish rock band u2 it was released on 9th of march uh, 1987 on island records the producer was dano linus and brian eno and the genre is rock and pop. I'm going to read from Stephen Thomas Irwine, All Music Review. Using the textured sonics of the unforgettable fire as a basis, U2 expanded those innovations by scaling back the songs to a personal setting and adding a grittier attack for this follow-up, The Joshua Tree. It's a move that returns them to the sweeping, anthemic rock of war. But if war was an exploding political bomb, The Joshua Tree is a journey through its aftermath trying to find sense and hope of the desperation. That means that even the anthems, the epic opener where the streets have no name, the yearning, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, have seeds of doubt within their soaring choruses, and those fears take root throughout the album. Whether it's in the mournful sliding acoustic guitars of Running to Stand Still, the surging One Tree Hill, or the hypnotic eulogy of Mothers of the Disappeared, so it may seem a little ironic that U2 became superstars on the back of such a dark record, but their focus has never been clear, nor has their music been catchy, more catchy uh, than on Joshua Tree. Unexpectedly, U2 have also tempered their textural post-punk with American influences. Not only are Bono's lyrics obsessed with America, but country and blues influences are heard throughout the record. Instead of using these as roots, they're used as ways to add texture to the music. There is a uniformity of excellent songs. The result is a powerful, uncompromising record that became a hit due to its vision and its melody. Never before has U2, U2's big messages sounded so direct and personal. All right. What do we think of U2, Joshua Tree? I mean, yeah, this is a this is a classic record. Yeah. Classic. It truly is. You can't you can't crap on an, an album that sold twenty five million, you know twenty five oh, million you copies. Can. <laughs> I mean, you can, and and there were parts where I I might, but you know those first three songs on the album are just they're huge. They're they're huge I mean, sonically. I would say first four at least. Yeah, yeah, I mean, first four at least. Well, yeah, I mean, but you you don't talking about bullet. Yeah, yeah. Bullet, bullet as a as a sound as a song is a huge song. Yeah, but I don't think that it had the same public, you know, like pop appeal that the first three did. Okay, I yeah. don't I don't hear on the radio it's as much. Too horny. Horny for for American for, radio for, for Wait vengeance. A <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, the first three singles were "With or Without You," "I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For," and "Where the Streets Have No Name." 
And then it goes to In God Country and One Tree Hill. So Bullet wasn't even a single. Oh, wait. Which so is, is Bullet not the fourth? It is the fourth oh, okay. on the album, but in terms of singles, oh, yeah, it yeah. was never a single. It's, so that's why. Was, was the live version a single? I think the live version was a single off of a subsequent record. Yes. Um, Under Blood Red Sky, I believe. Uh, Blood no, Red- Under Blood Red Sky was 83 or 4. Yeah. I'm mistaken. Uh, okay. So, yeah, it was probably from the, the Joshua Tree tour which then, of course, they made the movie for Rattle and Hum and put live tracks. That's though, what I'm thinking. Right. Though I There was not a Bolt of Blue Sky live track on the released album, I don't think, right? Wait, what? Uh, yeah, it's not the live version. No. No. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Studio. Yeah. This is pure well, studio. No, 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 of course. No, what I'm saying is that on uh, Rattle and Hum, on the record, Kyle was saying that there was a live release of a single of Rattle and Hop, uh, I'm sorry, of uh, Bolt of Blue Sky, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I was guessing it was off that tour, but I don't think it's on that record. But I do remember hearing it on the radio, though, Kyle. I, I agree with you that it certainly was released. I mean, it got radio play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe we're just misremembering because it's every 90s uh, alternative rock bands, uh, drums and bass. Yeah, and I also mean, the guitar streaks are straight up anything from the 90s. This is like Soundgarden yeah. stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's true. I guess I didn't think of that. This is one of my like favorite songs of all time. Like I think this and the recording is just flawless. And reading about how they did it was was fascinating to me. Depending on who you talk to, like some of the engineers said it was kind of like pared down from like you know, a 20 minute jam session and they went back and re-recorded more and mixed different takes. And I do know the drums, which sound like the biggest goddamn drums since like Led Zeppelin. They were um, recorded and then they went into a warehouse and pumped them out over a PA and recorded that. So that's why they sound Whoa. like 40 feet tall. <laughs> but yeah, I mm. and I know people shit on Bono. You know, it's easy to shit on Bono, but like... <laughs> This song, I mean, it's very, you know, anti-Reagan, you know, it's it's anti-war. And you got to look at when it came out, you know, the context. You can laugh at YouTube for a lot of things, but I, I think this, a lot of this album is unimpeachable. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just all the way through, it really does what it's aiming to. It feels like it, this is the break, right? This is the one that hit the most yeah. people. Yeah. Why do we think that is? Why do we think it hit the most people? This album? Yeah. I mean, it was uh, Live Aid was part of it. Sure. Sure. Uh, their performance at Live Aid was huge, um, just like everybody else who performed there in 85, I believe. Yeah. I think pulling in the American influences, yep. which is just not something that they had explored much before this too, right? So it feels like it Absolutely. has a scope that hits more of what rock and roll historically is about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, some, and it was some before they got roots. kind of obnoxious with it, arguably, with <laughs> Rattle and Hum. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say that. I think the American influences, which they picked up on the road while they were uh, touring America on the public radio, they heard Howlin' Wolf, Robert Johnson, Hank Williams, um, all these blues musicians, and also, obviously, Bob Dylan. And at the time, I guess... You know, it was said that they didn't really have a background in that music because they were punk rockers from, you know, Ireland and they didn't have the American influences and that this translated into the American side of uh, what what could be what they were thinking about. And so they took the concept, I think, to a really wonderful sort of cinematic place with all the 
sort of wide open feeling of it. Well, absolutely. Yeah, if you if you become go from punk, maybe arguably not great musicians to mastering mm-hmm. that, and then you're like, oh, look at all these lovely things I could listen to and have that influence later, like the impact of that. And you're yeah, guided by Eno's production and Le- is it yeah. Le- the master himself? Yeah, well, and and, Le- <laughs> and Lanois, so you've got kind of that 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 um, atmospheric and also that that crisp production and putting those two together, like. I mean, I don't know what you'd say. The delay on the guitar in With or Without You, just that huge open sound that it puts out. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. That, that that song for me, even though it's, you know, it could be considered, you know, pseudo-religious or like sappy. Yeah. It just, it just hits me. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we can kind of go through some of the songs, but the, the opening song is, is straight up a sort of religious sort of chorus that Eno is playing on on his synthesizer to sort of mm-hmm. like invite you into this, the mood that he has created, you know, previously with the ambient stuff that he's done. But also I got vibes, you know, we just did George Michael who had that church organ and it's like a, it brings you into a place. It really mm-hmm. does. And then that arpeggio, that's, that's a delay that, that sort of like resonates you into a scene, you know, it's, they were always talking about cinematic and the, you know, the West and American sure. stuff. And it's like, it just portrays this scene. I well, mean, gospel is about sonically helping you co- connect with spirituality, right? Right. So mm-hmm. It's like it puts it on that spiritual plane immediately as soon as you start to listen to the album, right? Yeah. You're being taught sonically to interact with it in a certain way. I think it's really effective. Yeah. I remember reading a review for this record like 20 years ago, and I, I'll never forget the phrase. It sounded like it was crafted by tall angels that always just stuck with me. none of those short angels <laughs> crafted by tall angels i was like yeah his bono like five six <laughs> it's probably normal but he sounds like six eight <laughs> yeah crafted is a good word because i guess i was reading they they took 40 percent of the time it was dedicated to where the streets have no name they got out a chalkboard and they were like writing out how to do it because the edge has to play uh, in three four at the beginning and then four four, but he's echoing himself. So it's like you're playing along with someone and you have to cut it a measure shorter, like a half measure shorter. So they're all like he's constructing all these like different elements within. It's so crazy too for me to think about the first three songs and how they sound so seamless but they each have like a studio magic trick going on. Like there's the mm-hmm. infinite guitar in a, I think with or without you, right. Where it's like, it's sort of feedbacking from one pickup to the other pickup. So you just have that sustained note. And, but at the same time, it like works perfectly with the streets have no name. And, you know, like they all just seem so seamless. And then it goes into, we're listening to uh, uh, running to stand still. Like this fits like, it's just amazing to get an album where every song you feel like this is completely different, but also feels like the exact same place, like at home. I don't know. Does this feel Springsteen-y a bit? Oh, absolutely. Do you, do you, do you, I mean, sure. Obviously yeah. Bono has been, you know, he's always been bombastic and he'll put a whale on, you know, Sunday, bloody Sunday, but here it, it seems tempered for the american feel not not heartland rock but yeah Yeah. american west rock i got a lot of bob dylan Mm -hmm. in the sort of yeah uh elements that i i was thinking about 
which makes perfect sense to why I was connecting to this, you know, as a as like a child, because, you know, we've grown up with the, all the sort of blues, rock, folk stuff that, you know, American music. And so now U2 is just translating that. I think for the longest time, I, I obviously heard these songs first, and I think I assumed that they were American band until I, you know, obviously were in their they're Irish because of this album in particular. Yeah, and I feel like, too, this record did so much to sort of retroactively reinvent who they were in a lot of ways uh, to the American public. I will follow off their first record or Sunday Bloody Sunday, um, New Year's Day on the radio all the time in the late 80s, early 90s, right? But they didn't have a top 40 hit until Pride on Unforgettable Fire right before this. It was only like 33. And so to go from Unforgettable Fire to this record, the first two singles they drop are their first two number ones in a row. The record's number one. They're on the cover of Time. And they won a Grammy. Yeah. Right. And so then I think I didn't really understand how obviously this record was so big. Right. But it changed everything they did before, too. Then all that stuff is on the radio all the time. The the first tape that I got of U2 was actually the one that Kyle referenced earlier under Blood Red Sky. Uh, And I, I remember picking it because it had the most songs that I recognized from the radio. Uh, and from VH1 daytime music videos, right? Because they played them all the time. Uh, I feel like I saw and heard that more than I heard with or without you or where the streets have no name, you know, or or other huge singles uh, off this record, right? And so I find that to be super interesting to me that they were not a big band until this came out. And then they're called the band of the 80s and all these earlier singles played everywhere. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they played a concert with the police around this time. And it's when the police were breaking up and basically just passed the torch. Uh, you know, police were the biggest Ooh, were the biggest yeah. band. And now U2 is kind of taking the mantle of, of the police, and so to speak. So Sting literally passed instruments to Bono <laughs> and the band, right? Did you read yeah. this? Yeah. Uh, they were going to say there's so, like a secret rock scepter. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. Yeah. But we don't, but we don't know. We're not allowed we to know what it is. We can't talk about that. We can't talk about the orb. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but I thought that's a really good point that you bring up, Birch. I was just reading about that today, actually, uh, that uh, Bono wrote about that in YouTube by YouTube, which I think is a, is a great book if anyone's interested in reading about them. I think it's a really good perspective. Uh, but yeah, I think that that whole thing is super important, interesting. And uh, somebody brought up Live Aid. And yeah, that made everybody 
more famous than they were. Uh, it was huge for everyone, but that, that stage dive, right. You got, I'm sure you guys read about this, right. How Bono jumps into the crowd and it's a big deal because it's so far away and there's all these barriers and the band just keeps playing, right. They just keep doing the same thing over and over. Uh, and edge at one point thinks that maybe Bono just gave up on the show and went back to his dressing room. He was gone for that long. <laughs> right. And so, but then, you know, Later, you know, Edge talks about how he thinks that, you know, after they're done, that it was terrible. It was a disaster. Uh, you know, he, he says it's crap or whatever, right? The way that they played. And then in the weeks after that, he realizes how important it was for them and how connecting with the audience and that sort of, you know, Bono's just like raw sort of, uh, you know, some might find it ridiculous. Some might find it endearing. Uh, but but that's what they had. That's who they were. And I think that it can't be understated that they go in to make this record next. Right. After that. And then, as all of you mentioned, how this record connects with everybody. Right. How Bert said it, it makes you feel at home. Right. I think the first question you asked at the very beginning, what's the difference? What made this record what it is? They figured out who they were. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And it's connecting to people, right? And that's and, and any music does that, right? Anybody could say that. That sounds super cheesy. Uh, but it's difficult to argue that you two fans, for good or bad, don't have a different and feel a deeper relationship personally with the band than some fans of other groups. Uh, I think they've always been known for that, right? Uh, and I think that this record was able to embody that and turn it into a huge hit uh, internationally, right? At the time, this was the fastest selling album in UK history. And it was the first album that was a new release that came out on every known, you know, current uh, format. So cassette, vinyl, oh, cool. and CD all at the same time. Wild. That's amazing. But this is also the album that that changed them, right? This rockets them to superstardom, which, you know, kind of became, you know, the idea of 90s U2. <laughs> but it took them a while to get there. <laughs> it's right. interesting, Josh, that you bring up, um, I don't know if you'd say like their earnestness, but the way that everybody kind of connects emotionally with their music during this period versus uh, what they did in the 90s, where they became extremely ironic. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah, yes, I agree with you totally for part they of the still 90s, had earnest right? songs, they, but they they're... made a lot of music in the 90s. <laughs> Again, for good or for bad, right? But I think Octung Baby is them at their earnest best. Uh, okay, uh, that's my that's my favorite one. That's the one that got me into them when I was a middle schooler. So and so I and that album that meant have... a lot to me. No, go ahead. There were some things on uh on Zeropa that that I think are good, and also that way it starts to fall off. Pop is unlistenable to me. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Have you yeah. listened to the uh, different mixes? They've released different mixes. Oh, uh, I mean, maybe I should try. Maybe that's maybe that's the problem. Maybe I just I'm a, I'm a right pop mix. stan over here. Uh, so <laughs> is that so then what? Lemon okay. is, on? is lemon on pop? No, 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 no. Lemon, lemon is on is on zero. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so so here's my question for you, Kyle. So uh, so you like Hot Song Baby, right? You think that that's uh, that's my favorite YouTube. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think? So if you like pop, uh, what do you think was, what was into something else? Hey, hey I'm not saying that pop is good. I'm just saying when I was, when I was 18, I was really into pop. I'm not saying it's good. There's oh, yeah, no, no, no. I, cool. I have, There's, you know, like we talked about 
um, some sentimental attaches, attachments to. But no, of course, of course. There's, I guess there's I was a lot of to... messy aspects to that record. But that was the last. Okay. That was the last U two that I was actually into. So, so when you feel like U two changed and sort of became, you know, uh, what maybe a, a lot of people make fun of, what is it about the nineties U two that is is different from the eighties U two, right? Um, what, what, like, how could you sort of overproduce? Because, okay, cool. Because I think that that's it, it's it's really interesting how they were the biggest band, you know, in in the world. A lot of people argue the biggest rock band, right, out of the eighties, and then in the nineties, people just turn on them, right? And part of it is uh, Bono, right? Part of it is is people, you know. But what do we feel like those differences are, right? So what did they lose here? Um, what what is it that we love here that then they they weren't able to keep up? <sighs> It's, it's difficult to say because you we should probably save this for Octoon what other Baby. albums are in there we got plenty yeah. we got two more u2 albums Octoon baby and one in the 90s well that is the 90s you mean probably is it probably the 2001 Atomic Bomb. no that, that's the all one that after. You i know it's the one after. all that you can't leave all that you can't leave behind yeah that's beautiful day elevation uh that's where i fell off singles. but yeah. I know like right around that time they had like the most successful rock and roll tour of all time yeah yeah, so so they've always been successful, right? I mean, they're still successful now. Is that the right? Elevate is, tour? Uh, that would make sense, right? Because uh, so. Elevation was off of that record. Mm. Uh, but I don't mean to to draw us into later YouTube. I guess I, I just more was trying to think about how how we define the things that we love about this mm-hmm. and and why it wasn't sustainable, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you you do have to as an artist, you have to grow, you have to evolve and change. I mean. Yes, I do like ACDC and they can write the same formula record over and over. But do I love all of those later records? No, not really. I mean, I can listen to them and it's the same for me with you, too. It's this this made the template that then they want to expand a little bit here, different directions. But I think this is the most cohesive idea that that everything just fell into place. They had a good background. They were looking towards the future. They had the new technology. Eno was there, which I think yeah. is mm-hmm. uh, yeah cannot be understated. Can't can't be understated for something like this where they want to experiment. And their other producer, you know, I think those producers really got them in the in a good place. And because they were literally saying, "Here's what you need. Like, let us help you to translate your your ideas into a good good sonically and and sort of." flesh this thing out and i'm not you know saying the later producers you know hindered them i'm just saying that this there was a time and a place and this definitely was their you know coming to god moment if you want to you know (laughs) use the sort of like jesus experience of the (laughs) the sort of like it does feel like a you're in a uh, you know these things are are very gospel influenced in a a way so it's like it crystallizes things from their previous in their career, but then adds these elements that are really important before those are kind of maybe tired pop tropes or right. before there's too much production, yeah. right? It balances everything. Yeah. hundred percent. And I wonder too, if from the producer's standpoint, if it's easier or if you have more control when the band is sort of up and coming though, I mean, you two had singles, they were very popular in, in Ireland and in the UK. Right. But um, if it's easier to do that when a ba- band is at that stage, then after they're on the cover of Time, they win a Grammy. They're called the biggest rock band of the decade. And now 
they come to very early 90s Aksang Baby. Is a band like that different? Is it a different band to produce, right? Are they going to act differently? And, uh, you know, Bono writes that one of the lies that, uh, you know, rock stars or famous musicians or whatever tell themselves is that fame won't change you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he says, not only will it, but it should. And which is interesting. Right. Uh, and, and he says, because why would you want to stay the same? Right. So it's an interesting idea, uh, but it makes total sense with how their albums kept trying to be different. Right. Um, so I, I wonder if it also became a harder job for other people yeah. um, sure. w- when you have a band that's mm-hmm. that's at that status. Yeah. It's also when you hit that pinnacle, I mean, you're always going to be it's it's you're going to be seen as less than perfect in people's eyes right once you get there it, it, no matter when you get there it's people always compare the next album to maybe when they fell in love with you or something like that you know it's yeah it's hard to do it's very yep. very hard to do and so i feel like everyone fell in love with this album huge seller every you know uh, one of the best selling albums of all time and and now everyone has to sort of realize okay you know, maybe they can't just do that every time. Yeah. And well, bad, and that's yeah. the thing is that like this record made us feel a certain way. Right. And and we've all talked about that. And, and so, you know, to Bono's point, people change. Right. And so to expect years later with Octung Baby, for example, to be, or even the singles that, that, you know, new singles off of Rattle and Hum to give us that same feeling, maybe we have a expectation that's impossible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the songs. Uh, how, how does it Bruce, I want to ask you a question. Yeah, what's up? So you brought up you brought up ACDC. Yep. Uh, and how you can kind of hear the same things, but you don't love the new records as much. Has listening to an ACDC album from start to finish ever made you feel like listening to this album? Not exactly the same way, but I mean, have you ever had that same connection that we've all talked about? Yeah. Back in black. Yeah. <laughs> High, highway to hell. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. are you saying that something that strongly connects with you at your core being maybe not the same parts of my core. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, this no, no. Okay. ACDC right. But here's the thing though. Like lower I, in the body yeah. than, than this. Right. Know? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. For sure. For sure. For sure. I guess to me, like there's a band like ACDC and even bands that I love and, and I like ACDC, but there's songs I listen to just because they're rockers or just because they're like, because it's fun pop stuff or it's a catchy hook that I can't get out of my head and I want to listen to. Right. Yeah. Um, as opposed to what we've kind of talked about is, We've used uh, words like like spiritual or this emotional connection or whatever, right? Um, so I, I guess the reason why I ask it is what level of expectation we put on certain bands' records uh, versus others. I don't listen to ACDC and have the same level of expectation no. as I do when I listen to U2 or Prince or Frightened Rabbit uh, or even a pop star like Cyndi Lauper. We judge right? music differently based on, you know our conceptions of what that music, what we like and what that music we think should sound like. Right. And what it means to us. And, and yes, that's, I, exactly. I guess that that's what I was wondering is that, is that then what this album sets up is something that's hard to match. Absolutely. I think it is. Mm-hmm. First side comes out so, so strong. Does anybody feel like it's a, it's a little top heavy? It's a little Absolutely. front loaded. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> okay. But I think that's good in this instance because it's so good that you're just continuing to love the songs as they're rolling to you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody else feels that way, but I listen to the first, you know, four songs and they're over before I even know it. 
Right. That's great and all, but I think they should have opened up side two with Bullet the Blue Sky. That would have been that such a great track. Oh. Yep. Yeah. Especially because it's so heavily like country. Like I feel like that matches what's going on on side two really well. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Side two definitely feels more. Tra- I don't know what you would call it. Traditional. Traditional. Yeah. More. Yeah. It, it yeah. doesn't have the sort of ring ringing out. Um, and, and it does go a little experimental with like exit mm-hmm. where it gets a look. Yeah. And Mothers of the Disappeared has some yeah. different feel to it, but overall it's a, it's a, it's a return. Well, overall it is a exploration of things that we as Americans would probably think of as traditional or roots music. Like you've mm-hmm. got your solid, just four bar blues. You've got your, right. you know, country song. I mean, there's a harmonica on a song. I mean, it's, it, it, it hits, yeah. it hits the, the, the key features of those musical styles yeah but i do think those first three songs set as i think birch had mentioned earlier set the stage for what this is going to be right and so uh and get you in this sort of mood for it and, and to experience those songs like you know i love running to stand still i think that might be my favorite great song, song in this record and uh and red hill mining town right so also too these are songs where the content of them are, are very much this you know working class regular people uh, you know, all of that stuff, right? The the salt of the earth sort of thing that not only musically are the things that, that go back to what you all were talking about with uh, American folk and blues and all that stuff, but also content wise, right? Um, and, and I find that to be super interesting that they're able to take those things they, they learn and experience on those tours and literally take it back to Ireland, literally go into Seven Towers, right? Which, which he mentions in Running to Stand Still, uh, which is this, you know, apartment complex that a ton of junkies lived in. Um, but his friend Guggy, who was in uh, Virgin Prunes, um, a goth band from Ireland that, that had some success. Sweet uh, goth band name. Yeah, yeah, they're actually they're they're pretty good. Uh, but he he lived there, and so uh, it was like an an experiment in uh, kind of how like a lot of. Uh, English cities did like the block sort of flat style. Council like it's all, right. Um, and so they did that in Dublin. Uh, and, and this is talking about the people who literally lived in that building and watching them be on heroin and, and the stories of like what he called taking these all or nothing trips from Amsterdam where uh, they would go over on a boat, tape heroin to their bodies and come back. Um, and know that if they got arrested, they you know, go to prison for 10 years. Right. Uh, and that was the the punishment. But the the reward for this particular guy who was talking about was that he has enough heroin for himself and his girlfriend for a little while. And so the juxtaposition, you know, that the comparing of these two things uh, is pretty fascinating. Right. And so there's a lot of things that are similar to me, to what you all were talking about with country and folk and blues and all these great genres of American music of, of heartbreak and of real life struggles that he applied to the heroin epidemic in, in Dublin. I, I think it's a, a pretty important thing.
yeah, a lot of, a lot of heavy issues on this album. I mean, where the streets have no name talking about the, uh, where it was said that you could determine, you know, someone's class, what they did in life by the street that they were on, the name of their street and what housing districts they were, they were on. So, you know, breaking that apart, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Obviously sort of that spiritual journey, Bull of the blue sky. You mentioned before about, um, South American, uh, uh, El Salvador, El Salvador, Nicaragua. yeah, yeah, uh, struggles and yeah, a, a lot of these, you know, we're we're about like heartache, loss, his journeys, um, yeah, the death of Greg Carroll, right? I mean, One Tree Hill is, yep. you know, uh, so you know, a technical assistant for Bono, uh, who died in like a bizarre like motorbike accident. Yep. Yeah, it was it was pretty recently. To, it was eighty six, close to the release of this. Yeah. So. But yeah, it it has a lot of heart heartache. It's interesting. It you know we're talking about the blues, we're talking about the those elements, and I feel like you know we're talking about a mature band at this point. They're they're dealing with these things now. He is going on mission trips, so it is a little uh, how do I put it preachy? Yeah, it has <laughs> yeah. it has an element to, for me of being like, oh, I see what's going on in the world. Let me tell everyone about th- these things. About how I think everyone should fix it. Right. But at the same time, <laughs> my position of I mean, he is trait. he is going to like uh, El Salvador and bringing like the mothers on stage when he performs Mothers of the Disappearance and mm-hmm. demanding that the government like tell these mothers where their dead children are buried and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's like a very serious, it, it has this, it rides this line, but I, I find it fascinating and I kind of love it. Yeah. We've touched on that in some other uh, artists like uh, Peter Gabriel's Biko. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> where do you, where do you draw the line between like uh, desolation porn and like doing a good thing? And I think the answer comes from, well, does it help? Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. if, it's if, about <laughs> impact more than intention. Exactly. Yeah. And so even if there are aspects of ego to the intention, if the impact is good, then that is important to consider too, right? Yeah, because yeah. I think Bono yeah. is like, <laughs> for many, especially now, like if you were saying, oh, okay, who's the quintessence of like right. a, a pompous rock star? People would say that, but then you have to say, well, but look, and he really has done a lot of good and he really was genuine and right. maybe he is now and we're the ones that are jaded. Yeah, I think this is a couple of years before the incident where he like left his hat in another country while he was on tour, <laughs> and then, and then he happened. made somebody like fly back to get it. <laughs> Love it. Not my hat. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the end of 1988, Joshua Tree had sold over 14 million copies worldwide. Ninth best-selling album in the UK during the 80s. Wow, 14 million copies. How many would you have to sell per day? In, in just those so, few years, yeah, it's but no, that's what one, one year. One in, it's one just year. eighty-eight, and that's from uh, March of or no, March yeah, of 87. eighty-seven to the end of eight, 88. eighty-eight. Okay, wow, still not the best-selling album in eighty-seven, though. I know, I know. Right, We're gonna- eighty-seven was jam-packed. We've kind of <laughs> yeah, talked yeah, about that a little bit. Okay, this okay. was cool. yeah, yeah. U2's best-selling album. Yeah. no, uh, yes, for the band, and I think now it's at around twenty-five million. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Now, is it is it still their best selling record? I, I would. Oh, well, I, uh, when I checked uh, recently, it, it said that it was of it, their albums. It but. said that it was. I believe so. OK. Does anybody want to guess what their most played songs live um, from the album are? Or do you want to guess uh, what their most played song is? 
that they play. It's got to be Bullet. It's got to be Bullet. The the number one song that they play live in concert. You mean not off this record or off any record or? Uh, let's just go with wh- whatever they play. Um, any record. Any record. What's the number one song? Well, right, but, but you're saying the song is on this record. Nope. Oh. Hint. Are you saying oh. it's not on this record? It's Lemon. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh. so I can't uh, answer. I can see what it is. <laughs> you got it. Well, okay, but but from when, though? Just whenever. Time. Yeah, of all, all time. YouTube. Of all time. If you counted every time you saw Oh, so if concert. you started when they started in like 1979. New Year's Day. I'm saying New Year's Day. From when they started in 1970, yes. whatever, eight or nine yes. to so Kyle 2022. So New Year's Day. They've played 1,049 times in concert. It makes me tired just thinking about it. I'm guessing Lemon. <laughs> Josh? I don't know. It's tough. You guys have uh, to know what this is, right? Hold me, kiss me, thrill what me. What is there? <laughs> <laughs> the YouTube it's, it's, anthem. The anthem of YouTube. But you said it's not on, it's not is on it this Sunday record. Bloody Sunday? Yeah. yeah. Is okay. it Pride? I, mean, I was yeah. guessing okay. Lemon as an ass joke. but <laughs> Sunday, yeah. Bloody Sunday. 1,000. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Really? Yes. Uh, then it goes Pride. Also easy to play live. Like a lot of this stuff uh, is. Yeah. Like, then it goes Pride. Then it goes I Will Follow. And then the. They're getting old. Fourth song is off of this album. Do you want to guess the fourth one? It's got to be Bullet, baby. It's Where the, where <laughs> what, the Streets Have Been. Yeah. 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 God the damn fifth it. Is, it's a great opener, right? It's yeah. a great like, the walk on the stage. The fifth is also yeah. off this album. Most played live. Yeah, I mean, it's not I'm looking for. <laughs> it's not bullet. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a Stelvin Tower. Because if you're for, saying right? they're getting older and they need something easier to play, it can't be bullet. It can't. Oh be no, 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 I'm not saying they need something you. easier to play. I'm saying just. <laughs> I'm saying that. Is it with or without? Right. You? Well, I mean, that that's may be hard on the vocal too. cords. Doesn't matter. What, what wow. I meant is is the tech stuff of like this record. Oh, setting up. I, I saw them yeah. do this record from start to finish, and they talked about how some of the songs they never played live before, because it just didn't translate. Did you catch that tour? Yeah, yeah, I saw it twice. I remember reading about that too. Okay. Yep. Red Hill Mining Town is a song that they had never played live. Exactly, until that until tour. Yeah. That tour. Oh, and they talk about it, yeah. And- uh, yeah, I want to talk about The Edge. When he, the first time he took Magic Mushrooms. <laughs> he was at a party. <laughs> okay. Uh, bassist Adam Clayton's house. He had taken some because he, had, he was like, well, I've never done them before. Let's try it out. It was right before this album. Uh, he took a few, waited 40 minutes. Nothing happened. He said, does the stupid thing, mm-hmm. which is he doubled down. Mm-hmm. Nothing happened. <laughs> he triples down. Oof. So <laughs> he was like, you know, oh, no, it's Edge. This is the Edge. So this is the Edge taking it at, oh. Adam's, at, Adam's house, right? yeah, at a party. Okay. Yeah. So he's like, OK, I guess nothing's going to happen. I guess I'll just go home. So he goes home and then he's in the middle of a dark room. He says he's watching fireworks display happening in his imagination, and he started to understand the secrets of the universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had a moment of insight, thinking to himself, I will never remember this tomorrow. I've got to get up and record these insights to the secrets of the universe. <laughs> Crawls across the floor, took, it takes him uh, 25 minutes to get his recording Walkman, you know, all the things he, he gets in bed, hits, hits uh, play. Gets the red light going, and then he starts, you know, recording. He says all the important secrets of the universe into this tape recorder. He wakes up, <laughs> and he realizes, oh my god, I recorded something last night while I was on mushrooms. It was the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. I'm going to play that back. He gets up. All the batteries are dead because the recorder's just been on all night, obviously. He gets up, and he, <laughs> he he's like, plays it back, and all it is like, 
<laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Not a single word. Is it, it, it released? <laughs> it's in the box set. <laughs> uh, love it. Uh, that sounds it's very relatable. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Is that how he wrote numb? Is that how numb is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's here's a really interesting thing about numb that I love. So Sunum came out on Zeropa, but Kyle's favorite album, Aksung Baby, that song was actually recorded for that album with completely different vocals. Uh, the, everything is different except for, well, I shouldn't say everything. Everything's essentially the same of like the instrumental stuff. There's some effects added in things later, but uh, it's called Down All The Days. It's currently my favorite U2 song as far as listening to stuff. I always try to find like, you know, sort of new to me things. One of the things I love about this time period with you 2 as well is that the B-sides and the stuff that never made records is awesome. And I think maybe that goes back to what we were talking about. If they, they kind of hit their stride here, right? And so there's some super fun stuff that's, you know, all over Spotify and everything that uh, that's around this time period to find. But uh, Down All the Days, not on any streaming services that I know of. I heard it on the U2 satellite radio when I had the first three months for free when I got a car. So, uh, but, uh, so but you can find it on, <laughs> well, right. Well, yeah, but you, you can just look it up on YouTube. Or you say I mean, down all the days, down all the days. Yeah. And it's, uh, and it's just one of those like riff songs where Bono is just like throwing out a bunch of different melodies, a bunch of different lyrics. It's not necessarily connected, uh, but it's amazing. It's just that sort of peak, like being in a band, trying new things and, landing on some really great stuff that they never used. Cool. Uh, we're all on the positive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Positive. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Okay. Awesome record. So great. Amazing. Just excellent. I actually can't wait to uh, revisit like Octoon Baby and uh, some of those other YouTube. I, I don't think I ever listened to like later YouTube, like 90s. I avoided it. I never bought it. What was that? An iPod? That oh, just was preloaded. preloaded. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can I? Oh, that, was, that was in the 2000s. Yeah. Can we address the elephant? That was a great record too. Josh, do you like this album the most because your name is in the album title? Oh yeah. Uh, so first, first off, uh, first off, great question, that? great question. Uh, second, this is not my favorite of their records. Okay. Uh, I think Unforgettable Fire uh, really, to me, hits like the middle ground for uh, my favorite kind of U two stuff. Okay. Uh, and then this is where they they start to to go over to the other side, follow them all the way through Octung Baby, most of the way through Zeropa, and then I'm out. Okay. Uh, then I come back a little bit later on, but yeah. 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 Great. Yeah. Phenomenal. Great. Yeah. All right. Next time we'll be talking about Terrence Trent Darby introducing the hard line according to Terrence Trent Darby. I think so. Mm-hmm.